0: Uh, My name is Chad Gray. I'm on staff here with Harbor City Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn uh, with me to uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 26. If you don't have your Bible, you can find the passage in the bulletin that you got on the way in. So um, I want to start off by reading the passage, and then we're going to jump right in, okay? So listen up. This is God's Word. Romans 3, 25 through 26. For all have sinned. All right, as many of you know, uh, my wife Melanie and I have a son. And his main purpose is to provide me with sermon illustrations. And so anytime that Stephen asks me to preach, um, my criteria for saying yes is whether or not Sam has, uh, has done or said anything funny or insightful. And so, uh, and so that is, it, it's no different today. So lately Sam is like super obsessed with guns. Okay, he's super obsessed with guns and we're, we're not sure how it happened. Like, we've been really careful about, you know, not letting him um, watch TV shows that feature guns or have toys that are guns. Uh, We don't let him play with friends, like, gunning with friends, Um, right? We've, like, totally kept him out of the whole, like, Second Amendment debate. Like, he's he's pretty much, like, doesn't know anything about that. All right, but somehow, uh, this concept of guns has, like, leaked into his psyche, and and now he's just absolutely uh, obsessed. So, first... He discovered that he came out of the womb fully armed with, uh, with two pistols at the end of his wrists, and he brandishes those all the time. Uh, and then uh, one day, he and I are working in the garage, and he finds these loose pipe fittings in my toolbox that bear this sort of kind of a resemblance, I guess, to like chrome-plated Colt 45s or something. He's been like, he's had them tucked in his pants, and he's been like running around with them for weeks now, all right? And so, and then... Most recently, he discovered that he could actually design his own firearm uh, with his Legos. And so I have, I have brought in, um, this, is, this is his own design. I did not uh, help him with this at all. you can see, there's a, a sight along the barrel so he can aim right for your heart. And uh, this is actually the feature that he is most proud of. You can see the trigger here. And he, he loves to point out that when he pulls on it, it makes a sound. See, and so, uh, so this is, you, I, I, you explained to him that you actually, then you have to put it back together and it doesn't work. Anyway, he's working on it. But, um, <laughs> right? So Melanie and I basically were like, we don't know what to do with this. Um, but then it gets worse because one day he's like, he's like climbing up a chair or something, which happens in our house a lot. And, he, and because of his elevation, he gets this angle and he can see up on top of this tall cabinet. And up there he spots my grandfather's vintage 1930s BB gun, all right? This is a, uh, this is a, a Daisy one-shot, one-pump air rifle, which my father gave to me when they recently moved out of their house, all right? And Sam spots it, and he's just like, <gasps> like overcome, right? Because in his mind, this is a real gun. And obviously, it's the source of all joy and happiness. And so, of course, he wants to see it, he wants to touch it, he wants to, you know, he wants to shoot it. Um, and I don't want him to play with a BB gun, right? He's four and a half, right? I, I have standards. Um, uh, but I'm thinking to myself, in all of my fatherly wisdom, I'm thinking, you know what? Uh, if I hide this treasure from him, it will only further inflame his passion. It would be much wiser if I like, engage him in this conversation, right, and, st- and start to shepherd uh, his, his desires and, and, and try to instill in him, you know, this proper um, respect and caution for this dangerous weapon. Um, and, right, so I take the BB gun down from the cabinet with great ceremony. I say, Sam, this BB gun was your great-grandfather's, which he bequeathed <laughs> to your grandfather, who in turn bequeathed it to me, and one day sam when you are a man i will bequeath it to you but only if you learn the ways of wisdom <laughs> my son would you like to learn the ways of wisdom yes yes papa yes i want to learn the, the ways of wisdom all right and so i begin lecturing him all right about uh, how dangerous guns are, you never touch them without me around, I show them all the parts, uh, I, sh- I explain the trigger and how uh, when you pull it, the BB comes shooting out of the barrel and it comes out really fast and it can give you an owie, so you never, never, never point it at anybody, you never point it at yourself. Um, and I'm, I'm having him repeat all this stuff back to me, right, to make it sink in. And I feel like I'm making progress, right? So when he asks me the inevitable question, can, can we shoot it? I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, we can, you know, because this is a good way for me to demonstrate the power of this weapon, put a little fear of God in the boy. And so, with great seriousness, we march outside, and I make him stand back with his mom, and I load a single BB into the barrel, cock the gun, Sam, stand back. I don't know what's going to happen. This might ricochet. We're going to shoot out a window. I have no idea. This is serious business. I pull the wooden stock back against my shoulder, and I sight down the barrel. My finger curls around the cold steel of the trigger. And I pull the trigger, and the gun makes this sound. And the BB sort of just, like, rolls out the end of the... At the end of the gun, and it falls in the dirt at my feet. So Sam runs over and he picks up the BB. He turns to me. He says, "Papa, I'm definitely faster than a bullet." (laughs) And I'm I'm just like, ah, like after all of my my speech, you know, about the danger, the caution, um, having respect for firearms, all of my amazing parenting, really. um, Sam's conclusion is the exact opposite of what I'm intending. Right, and now he's running around the yard, demonstrating how fast he is. It's obviously faster than a bullet, Papa. And I'm trying to explain. I'm like, Sam, actually, you, you know, you've you've drawn the wrong conclusion here. Like, I, you know, um, you're not faster than a bullet. Sam is having none of it. And it occurs to me that Sam is having none of it because what I'm telling him doesn't line up with his experience. Right? What I'm telling him doesn't line up. With his experience. And so I call up Steve and I say, yes, I can preach this sermon uh, because, because Sam has actually given me an illustration that, that, uh, that shows us uh, the problem that I think is raised by this passage here in Romans 3. And the question is this, how can I believe what God tells me when it doesn't line up with my experience? Right? How can I believe what God tells me when it doesn't line up with my experience. That's the problem that I want to address today. So if you want to take notes uh, in your bulletin where it says the problem, you can write assurance. Assurance. How can I believe what God tells me when it doesn't line up with my experience? All right, so we're in the middle of a sermon series. It's called The New Now, and we've been working our way uh, through the book of Romans written by the apostle Paul And we've made it to the middle of chapter 3, so we're about two and a half chapters in. And through those two and a half chapters, Paul has has made it abundantly clear that every one of us stands before God uh, guilty and broken. We are guilty and broken. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's as though for two and a half chapters, sort of the clouds have been gathering. You know, dark and foreboding clouds of God's righteous judgment over us. And then we hit uh, verse 21 of chapter 3, which begins with this glorious phrase, but God. But God. We were up the creek, but God. All hope was lost, but God. And with this phrase, but God, it's like the clouds of God's righteous judgment are suddenly pierced. And over the last two weeks, Pastor Stephen has been bringing it. He has been preaching fire, the fire of the good news, the good news of this glorious new now which Jesus uh, brings us into. So if you missed the last two weeks, I, just, I strongly recommend you go to our website um, and, you, uh, and you check out those sermons online. It will do your heart good. Uh, but to set us up for our message today, here's a quick summary of the past two weeks, right? We've been unpacking verses uh, 23 and 24. Uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In the new now, we who stood guilty and broken before God have been justified and redeemed. All right, so what does the convicted criminal need most He needs forgiveness and acceptance back into the family. And that's the justification that God has given us. What does the slave need most? It's freedom and a new life. That's the redemption that Jesus has given us. It's fantastic. It's fantastic news. God has given us exactly what we need. But in the midst of the good news, a question presses in is it really true? Right, is it, is it really true? Because here's the thing, God, like you say that I'm forgiven, that I'm accepted, that I'm, I'm freed from sin, that I'm given a new life. Um, but I often actually feel guilty and ashamed. And God, sometimes... Um, and sometimes I feel abandoned by you. Where are you? Um, especially in my suffering, how could you let that happen? Where were you when that happened? God, I feel, um, I feel enslaved by my sin. I feel enslaved by my sin. There are things that I, I just cannot get rid of. And God, if I'm honest, there are things that I... Like, I just don't want to get rid of. God, I feel like I'm in a spiritual coma. If this is the new life that you promised me, like, I'm just not sure if I want it. I mean, God, justification, redemption, um, it sounds great. It's just, not, it's just not lining up with my experience. And I, and I, don't, I don't know what to do. anybody else? In the room feel like this ever? It's not just me. When there is a disconnect between what God says is true about me and what I'm actually experiencing, it creates this tension that demands to be resolved. Like I have to lean one way or the other. I got to pick one or the other. And in my experience, this tension, it, it tends to lead me down two different paths that are both destructive. Uh, the first path uh, leads me to be dishonest. Um, I pretend there's, uh, there's nothing, there's no, no disconnect. I pretend uh, that everything is fine. Um, for me, uh, just a little confession here, this manifests uh, in me getting really good at mimicking uh, the language and the manner of people who I assume have it all together. Right, so someone says, how you doing, Chad? I'm like, oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm just kind of walking with the Lord. Spending time in his word, I'm just, I'm just a sheep of his pasture, really. You know, so like I get really good at like living this double life, um, sort of keeping people at a distance, uh, avoiding vulnerability so I can kind of maintain appearances. It's, it's dishonest. Um, the other path, it leads me to be disengaged, right? Um, it's like I, I kind of indulge the disconnect that I'm feeling. Um, I almost take pleasure in describing my, my, my struggles. I, I sort of glor- glorify them. I think that this path, um, for a lot of us, it masquerades as this thing we call authenticity. Um, especially for those of us who have uh, experienced uh, church communities that kind of lean the other way, like towards that dishonest path, uh, we, Tend to admire what we think is refreshing honesty, and it can be—it can be good, healthy, refreshing honesty. But the danger is when we give uh, our doubts free rein to shape our hearts, without letting any other voice like push back against them. Right, and when we do that, it leads to cynicism, it leads to skepticism about spiritual things, um, it leads to like a hardness of heart, and I become more and more disengaged. I think I think honestly, whole churches can kind of lean one way or the other, and we can be influenced by that. Um, and it's funny because I think uh, I think usually the disengaged Christians like don't like the dishonest Christians, and the dishonest Christians don't like, the dis- you know, but they're both suffering from the same root cause. They're both suffering from the same root cause. It's a it's a failure to reconcile the truth of what of what God says with the truth of my experience. Like we just haven't learned how to resolve that tension in a healthy way. Y'all, I want you to know I'm awesome at both of these. Like I'm I'm like artist level. I I go back and forth uh, between the two extremes. It wears me the hell out. It wears me the hell out. My heart is like ragged. With this cycle between dishonesty and disengagement. I don't think this is what God is calling us to. There's got to be something better. Because if there isn't, honestly, y'all, like, like I don't really want to be part of this. The problem is assurance, right? How can I believe what God says about my justification and redemption when it doesn't line up with my experience? That's the problem. Um, the good news is that God gives us a solution in the next verse. Verse 25. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received as faith. That is a $10 word, propitiation. And propitiation is God's solution to my problem of assurance. Propitiation is God's solution to my problem of assurance. Propitiation properly understood, uh, gives me assurance that what God says about my justification and redemption is actually true, no matter what I feel, no matter what I experience. And believing that truth actually has the power to shape my experience. Propitiation is the bedrock. It is the bedrock on which our faith must rest, if we're ever to get out of this cycle of dishonesty and disengagement. Propitiation. All right. so what does it mean? It's a big word. It's not a super familiar word. Here's what it means. Propitiation means a payment offered to appease God's wrath. A payment offered to appease God's wrath. Sounds like super news. Sunshine, lollipops, God's wrath. Aren't you glad you came? Right? Christians in the room, you totally love to go hang out with your non-Christian friends and tell them about God's wrath, right? If you're here and you're not a Christian, like, I totally wouldn't blame you if you're just like, oh, my God. The one day I come to church and he's talking about God's wrath and they, like, didn't even have donuts. (laughs) It sucks, right? Listen, um, I want to say, if... If you are embarrassed, if you are offended, if you are even shocked by the idea of appeasing God's wrath, you're not alone. You're just, you're just not alone. Uh, this is one of those things that just it cuts against the grain of our hearts. It pushes against the current of our culture. People don't like this. For a lot of us, the idea of appeasing God's wrath, it calls to mind something primitive, like bloodthirsty tyrannical, abusive. You know what? This concept of God has been used by people in power for for centuries to oppress other cultures, other races, other religions, other genders, other sexual orientations. This concept of a wrathful God is poison. Why are we still talking about it? And for others of us, to even suppose that God gets angry and needs to be appeased, I mean, it's beneath him, right? It sounds like this childish bully, like, burning slugs with a magnifying glass, right? Like, that is not my God. I'm sorry. I believe in a God of love. So why are we talking about appeasing wrath? I think those are really good questions. We're talking about appeasing God's wrath because the Bible talks about appeasing God's wrath. I mean, you just can't can't read the Bible without smacking your head into this idea of appeasing God's wrath. You can't read this book of Romans without smacking your head into this idea of appeasing God's wrath. I mean, Paul makes it clear that God's wrath is actually the main problem facing humanity. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he he, he says... The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Then in chapter 2, verse 5, he talks about the coming day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. Then in chapter 3, verse 5, he makes the point that God is righteous to inflict his wrath on us. And then here we are with this verse, propitiation. It means a payment offered to appease God's wrath. Like, we can't avoid talking about God's wrath and still be a Christian church. Like, do you you see that? But listen, like, the Bible presents propitiation as really, really good news, as the foundation of all of our hope. If we're embarrassed, if we're offended by it, There's there's something going on in our hearts that that deserves a closer look. And one way we can do that is is by making sure that we understand Christian propitiation properly. All right, because propitiation isn't just a Christian uh, concept, right? It's been around for a long time, it shows up in every culture, every time period, all across the globe. Uh, But Christian propitiation is unique, it's not the same. And serious problems arise when when we let counterfeit ideas of propitiation start to influence our relationship with God. Serious problems. I cannot underline this enough. Uh, Christian propitiation shows us who God is. Christian propitiation shows us who God is. That means if we have a wrong understanding of propitiation, we have a wrong understanding of God. You get that? Like, it's serious business. So I want to use three questions uh, to help us uh, contrast the counterfeit ideas about propitiation with the truth that God gives us, okay? First question is this. Why is propitiation necessary? Why is propitiation necessary? The counterfeit answer is this. Propitiation is necessary because God's anger is set against people. God's anger is set against people. This is essentially saying that God's wrath is a personal vendetta, right? If you cross God, he's going to get you. If not today, tomorrow. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, and really our only hope is to do whatever he asks us to do and hope that he doesn't squash us. This is not Christian propitiation. God's anger is not set against people. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven makes it clear. The Lord says, as I live, declares the Lord. As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way, turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why? Why would you die? That's the Lord begging wicked people. He's, he's reaching out his hands and saying, what? Come back. God's anger is not set against people. The truth is that propitiation is necessary because God's goodness is set against evil. All right? God's goodness is set against evil. This means that evil and evil alone triggers God's wrath. His wrath is never mixed with any selfish desire for power, control, uh, for pleasure. His wrath is always perfectly predictable precisely aimed at evil alone and perfectly good. And in fact, God's goodness requires wrath. God's goodness requires wrath. And you might think that sounds crazy, but I actually think everybody in this room believes this. And here's why. We know that no one can be for good without being against evil. Right? Everybody knows that it's wrong to do nothing to, preve- to prevent a serial rapist from continuing his crimes. Right? Because to refuse to stop evil is actually evil. Right? As a human race, like, we know this. Uh, we've known it for a long time. Like, Plato, back in the fifth century BC, he put it like this. Your silence gives consent. Your silence gives consent. And more recently, world-renowned African humanitarian, activist, religious leader Desmond Tutu put it like this, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was part of the resistance against Nazi Germany, and he wrote this very strongly. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Silence in the face of evil is evil. Like, we know this. In order to be for the good, you must be against evil. It's no different for God. He can't be passive in the face of evil and remain good. His goodness requires wrath against evil. In fact, uh, for him to compromise with any evil, no matter how small, is to forfeit his goodness. His perfect goodness requires that he is totally against evil. So the problem for me is when I stop looking at the evil out there and I look at the evil in the mirror. Right? Because God has clearly drawn the line between good and evil in his word and by my thoughts, by my words, by what I've done, by what I've left undone, I have put myself on the wrong side of that line. And I have exposed myself to God's perfectly predictable, perfectly precise, and perfectly good wrath against evil. My only hope is that there might be a propitiation for me. Propitiation is necessary because God's goodness is against evil. His goodness is set against evil. The second question is this, who does the propitiating? The counterfeit answer is this, I do. I do the propitiating by giving myself to God in various acts of devotion. We like to look down our noses at sort of our our primitive ancestors who did this with grain and animal sacrifices, but, but we do the exact same thing. With acts of penance, you know, with our good deeds, with performance, with anything that we offer to God to earn His approval. If in our hearts and our minds, the initiative, the effort, uh, the commitment, the payment is coming from us and going to God, that's not Christian propitiation. So, who does the propitiating? The truth is that God does. Instead of me giving myself to God, God gives himself to me in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 says, God, God, it was God who put Jesus forward as a propitiation. It was God who did it. The love, the idea, the initiative, the effort, the commitment, the payment, they're all coming from God. And if you would, sort of interrupt me and say, oh, well, here, here we go. This is, this is divine child abuse. This is the God the Father. This is God, this is, I don't want to laugh at this because I think this is actually like a real struggle for people. They say, oh, God abused his son. That justifies how I would oppress others. That's a serious charge. But look, um, I'm sorry. If that's what you think, like you, you just radically misunderstood who Jesus is. You just radically misunderstood who he is. Jesus is fully God while being, while being fully human. That means when God put Jesus forward, he put himself forward. God does the propitiating by giving himself to me. Third question. How do I know it worked? How do I know propitiation worked? How do I know that the payment was enough to appease God's wrath? The counterfeit answer is pretty bleak. For the third question, the counterfeit answer is pretty bleak. It's it's I don't. I don't. Mark, would you pull it up? Thanks, buddy. How do I know propitiation worked? I don't. If God is angry at me and my only hope lies in my effort and my commitment to pay the debt, like I'm just never sure if I've paid enough. And even if I pay enough today, like tomorrow's coming. With new sin, with new evil, with new wrath, my only hope that I can possibly have lies in repetition, right, to be stuck on an endless treadmill Of my effort. That's not God's idea of propitiation. How do I know propitiation worked? How do I know the payment was enough? God's answer is not repetition, it is resurrection. God's answer is resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is God's vindication that my debt has been paid, it is finished. It is finished, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the big, grand exchange. God takes my place and I take his. Propitiation is a payment offered to appease God's wrath. It is necessary because God is uncompromisingly good and it is accomplished because God is unceasingly merciful and the blood-red stamp across my contract reads, "Paid in full by Christ Jesus, firstborn from the dead, king of kings and Lord of Lords." Hallelujah, amen. This is propitiation. I said earlier that Christian propitiation, it shows us who God is, and it does. Uh, Paul makes it plain in verse 26. He says, propitiation was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Propitiation declares these two mighty truths about our God. He is just in Jesus. God has demonstrated his goodness by pouring out his wrath on my sin, and he is justifier. In Jesus, God has demonstrated his love by putting himself in my place on the cross. And this is the magnificence of God's plan that he would righteously righteous the unrighteous. That's his plan to righteously righteous the unrighteous. In salvation, God has not compromised his character at all. Instead, he's, he's put it on display for the whole universe to see that he is just and justifier. So remember the problem we were talking about? Assurance. How can I believe what God tells me when it doesn't line up with my experience? Here's the cash value today propitiation tells me that I can doubt my doubts. I can doubt my doubts. When my feelings don't line up with what God tells me, the answer is to run back to the bedrock assurance of Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. My God has declared me justified and redeemed. So when I feel guilty, When I feel guilty, I'm doubting my forgiveness. And the gospel truth that I preach to myself is that my God is just. He cannot hold me responsible for sins that have already been propitiated by Jesus. My God declares me justified and redeemed. And when I feel abandoned, I'm doubting my acceptance. And the gospel truth that I preach to myself is my God is justifier. He moved heaven and earth to restore fellowship with me. Nothing can separate me from his love. In fact, he makes all things, even my suffering, work together for my good. My God has declared me justified and redeemed. And when I feel enslaved by my sin, I'm doubting my freedom. And the gospel truth that I preach to myself is my God is just. And he defeated the power of my sin when he nailed it to the cross Sin is no longer my master. My God has declared me justified and redeemed. And when I feel spiritually dead, I'm doubting my new life in Christ. And the gospel truth that I preach to myself is that my God is justifier. Because of his great love for me, even when I was dead in my sins, he made me alive together with Christ. By grace, I have been saved. And he raised me up with Jesus, and he seated me with him in the heavenly places. My God has declared me justified and redeemed. And y'all, I'm taking it to the bank. And here's the thing. As I, as I believe this, like as I, as, I, as I take feeble and stumbling steps to walk in the truth that God has declared over me, my experience actually starts to change. It starts to shape who I actually am. It's not all at once, but it's not dishonest. And there's lots of setbacks, but it's, it's, it's not disengaged. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, I receive his assurance by faith. So this week, I I want us to practice preaching the good news of propitiation to ourselves, and here's how you can do it. This week, keep an eye, today, like in the next five minutes, and continuing on, keep an eye on your feelings of guilt abandonment, slavery, spiritual apathy. And when you run into them, take time. Take time to meditate on how God's character as just and justifier might speak into your experience. Like wrestle with it, struggle with it. Be honest, be engaged. And as you do, Share your experience with someone else. Don't try to do this alone. Share your experience with someone else so we can spur each other on to believe the good news of our propitiation. Let's pray together. God, you have justified us and you have redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Lord, you give us this this word, propitiation, which is like a flower that blooms open and all of this beauty is there for us to behold. Um, It's a strong beauty. Lord, we don't like to talk about your wrath. Um, It's hard for us to swallow. God, I hope um, that I've done justice to your word. I hope that the way that i've preached about wrath can set people free uh, from their embarrassment from their uh, from their offense about your wrath and that they can truly see it as an expression of your goodness and they can truly see the lengths to which you have gone uh, to uphold your character as just but also as justifier Help us to hold these two things uh, in our hearts, in our minds. Let them start to shape who we are as we we walk in this life that you've called us into. Lord, we want this so much. We want to be free uh, of of being tossed around by uh, the waves of our experience. Uh, When we we don't feel what you declare to be true over us, set us free uh, by, by showing us who you are. And as we behold, that glory will be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus uh, by whose name we are saved. We pray this uh, in that name, in that glorious name of Jesus. Amen.